Well, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be spending time this morning as we continue preparing our hearts for Christmas in Matthew 2, 1 through 12. I don't know why, I think I shared before that I think most people will fall out in their Christmas aesthetic into one of three camps. There are people who just, uh, if you're looking at a, a rack filled with Christmas cards, uh, some people like the manger scene, some people like the angels out in the fields, and some people like the We Three Kings kind of a motif in their Christmas card. I'm a Three Kings guy. I don't know why, but if I'm there picking out a Christmas card, I'm always reaching for the one with the Three Kings. And uh, one of my favorite parts of the Christmas story, so Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, we read this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Uh, Now, one of the first questions, a couple of questions that I want to address this morning... And one is exactly who are these guys, uh, the wise men? Although they're popularly depicted, again, on those Christmas cards and ornaments and things like that, as three camel-riding exotic kings, (laughs) the Bible does not really support any of these ideas. Uh, It might surprise you, but there's no mention of a camel in the Holy Word of God, at least as it relates to the wise men. I think camels are mentioned elsewhere, but not here. And we know that there were more than one of them, for the plural magi is used rather than magus, but whether there were two or three or three hundred, we don't know. All we know is that there were more than one. Again, we normally think of them as three, I think, because there are the three gifts, um, but there's nothing to tell us that that's how many were, they were there. They probably, although no camel is mentioned, they probably rode on something, and that's because if they hailed from as far away as Persia, which some scholars speculate they did, that journey would have been equivalent to traveling as the crow flies from Presque Isle, Maine to Detroit, Michigan. And so it's hard to imagine doing that on foot. 
But they also probably, you know, normally we see them depicted as three solitary travelers. And in that day and age, especially traveling with the kind of uh, valuable things they had on their person and being people of some status, most likely in their home country, they were probably not traveling just three guys on a road trip. There was probably a whole caravan attached to this. And so, like, for example, when they roll into Jerusalem and uh, they announced, we're looking for he who was born king of the Jews, uh, this would not have escaped a dictator like Herod's notice. This would have been a large group of people coming into his territory, his city with this announcement. It would have been a big deal. And so don't, we need to put away from our minds this idea that these were just a few solitary travelers. This was probably a large caravan and traveling at great distance. The Bible also does not support the notion that they were kings. Uh, In fact, to describe them as kings or even the more common wise men is really something of a whitewashing of their true identity. The Greek word used to describe these fellows, and maybe in your version it's there as a transliteration, most uh, early translations of the Bible just kind of left it magi uh, and didn't try to explain really what that was. But magi is the word used in the Greek. The ancient historian Herodotus speaks of the magi describing them as a priestly caste of the Medes. The ancient historian Herodotus goes on, he says, the magi were known for their ability to interpret dreams, and they served as a bridge between the world of men and the mysterious mystical world of the supernatural. Do you remember in the story of Daniel when uh, the king had a troubling dream, and he called together the wise men to interpret the dream, but none of them could. Do you know what that, those guys were? Those were magi. That's who he called. Magi are spoken of in the Old and the New Testament of the Bible as this kind of mysterious group of magicians, sorcerers, astrologists, They kind of had one foot in the world of science and another foot in the world of supernatural interpretation. Uh, Maybe an equivalent, not a clean equivalent, but maybe something to help us think culturally about these guys and how they would have been viewed might be something like the Druids. Uh, I don't know how clean a comparison that is, but this is a group of people who were viewed by the society that they lived in as having a finger on the pulse of the supernatural. The Magi are known for their ability to interpret dreams. They they were practitioners of an ancient form of astrology. And they were known, their stock in trade was magic. In fact, in the first century Roman world into which Jesus was born, magi, their identity was so intertwined with magic and sorcery that it had become kind of just a shorthand word for the practice itself. In fact, this is preserved in our own language. Our words magic and magician, the etymological root of that word is magi, even in English today. And that's a holdover from those days when, it, when throughout the known world, the Magi were so intertwined with this idea of magic that that's why um, this is passed down even to us in English today. Among the Greeks, the word Magi was commonly applied with a tone of scorn. 
they tended to think of the Magi as hucksters and, frankly, con artists. Magic and sorcery was what the Magi were known for. So throughout the first century Roman world, into which Jesus was born, the Magi were famous for the, being kind of these practitioners of the dark arts. And perhaps most notably, again, for this ancient form of astrology. There were sorcerers, studiers of the stars, and they claimed to have access to supernatural knowledge that they obtained through hidden means, the secret of which only they and theirs knew. In Acts 13, just for context, Paul and Barnabas, at the outset of their missionary travels, they're on the island of Cyprus, and there they encountered a man who is described as a wicked false prophet and a magician who has the ear of the local proconsul. The proconsul had kind of fallen under the sway of this man, and he had started going by the name Bar-Jesus which is interesting because Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. A lot of Bible scholars think he was claiming to be the heir to Jesus' ministry, which is a, a pretty crazy thing for this guy to be saying. But he also has an earlier name that he went by, which is Elimas. It's an Arabic name, and it means wise man or magician. Now, the word the Bible uses when it describes him as a magician or sorcerer is... Magi. This guy, this wicked sorcerer, this false teacher, this false prophet, he's a magi. We see the same thing in Acts 8 where Simon the sorcerer, that word sorcerer is magi. So everywhere that we encounter these men in the Bible, everywhere from the Old Testament all the way up through the New, they are associated with folly, error, uh, they're inept. They are kind of on the wrong side of issues, and they're evil. And so it's very striking then that we find them in the Christmas story. What do you make about that? This kind of reminds me of that one stanza from the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. You know the one goes, and forgive me, Candles and Carols is canceled tonight, so I'm going to give you a little something. <laughs> and the song is the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, you muted me. Oh, that... Dave Whitaker, boy, Johnny on the spot right there. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories. Tales of the glories of Christmas. Now, for me, whenever I encounter that line in the song, there will be scary ghost stories. Now, I think what they're picturing is like all the cousins are home and you're late at night, you're talking and maybe you're sharing. I don't, but that does not fit with my Christmas aesthetic at all. Does anybody else have that feeling? Am I alone? Show of hands. How many of you? Yeah, okay. Some of us go scary ghost stories. That doesn't fit. Now, when I know everything I know about the Magi, this really flies in the face of kind of the wholesome image I've had my whole life of these camel-riding good guys. These probably were a bunch of sorcerer weirdos. <laughs> it just doesn't fit with my vision of the Christmas story. So kind of like scary ghost stories, this information about the Magi is not Christmassy to my mind at all. 
I go, parties for hosting, check. Marshmallows for toasting, I'm on board. Scary ghost stories? And I kind of go, shepherds, check. Angels, check. Manger, check. Weirdo sorcerers, no. (laughs) This doesn't fit at all. So what's going on with these guys? Why are they there? What's the significance? We'll come back to that. But there's another thing that's puzzling to me, and that is the star of Bethlehem. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about the star of Bethlehem? I think in some ways this is even more mysterious than the Magi. I have to say air with a star with air quotes a little bit, and I'll tell you why. It's most commonly described as a star, and in fact, in our Bibles, that's a, that's a good word. The word that's used in the Greek is aster, which has a broader meaning than just star. It means any celestial body. I suppose it's the difference between like UFO and alien spacecraft, right? UFO is just there's an object in the sky that we can't identify, An alien spacecraft is very specific. That's Martians, right? So when we say that it's an aster, it's a celestial body, it's an object up there, and most commonly, in just common speech, that's a word usually used for star. But it can have a broader meaning, so let's at least establish that. Now, I think, even though it's most commonly described as a star, and again, you've seen it depicted as such, I, Josh Tate, I'm going to share with you my personal opinion. I don't believe it was a star. I don't think so. For one, it doesn't behave like a star. It was only visible to the Magi, apparently. Other people studying the stars at the time don't seem to pay any attention to this thing that's risen and is there. The Magi seem to be the only one who have been keyed in to its existence. That's unusual for something that's in the sky, for any and all to see, only the magi seeming are seemingly aware of it. And whereas ancient travelers commonly used stars to help them navigate by night, stars helped navigators in those days by functioning as a fixed celestial point, kind of like a landmark in the sky that could be used by travelers to orient themselves on the ground. However, this star is described not as a landmark, a fixed celestial point, but it's depicted as a guide that they're following. The difference between how stars were typically used by travelers and how the Magi were using this star would have been the difference between saying, turn left when you come to the big barn, and saying, just follow the magical moving barn wherever it takes you. Through field, fountain, moor, mountain, doesn't matter. Just wherever the barn goes, keep following it. Follow yonder barn. (laughs) That's a big difference between a landmark and an object that is moving and you're following it. And lastly, unlike a star, which is high up in the vast, distant reaches of outer space, this star, we're told, came to rest over the specific place where the child was. Two things about that that don't seem very star-like is, one, it could be visibly seen to stop moving. It was moving, and then it stopped. 
That's strange for a star in its behavior. And then second, and this is decidedly unstar-like, when it stopped moving or came to rest, as the Bible says it, it was apparently close enough to the earth that the place where the child was could be clearly discerned to be beneath it. Let me ask you, what building or what street, what town (laughs) is directly below the center star in Orion's belt? Probably 505 Main Street, right? Right? (laughs) No, probably 503, right? I think it's a bit of a fool's errand to try and explain this star, though, through scientific phenomenon. A lot of people have tried. They've tried to remap the star star at that time. And that's all great. I'm not even opposed to that. That's interesting stuff. But I think that what's being depicted here is not something natural, like a comet or planets coming into alignment or any such thing. I think that what is being clearly depicted for us in the pages of Scripture is something supernatural, something of God. And that's how I think of it. I think the object that is, comes most close in the Bible to describing how this star is functioning is the pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt to begin with. Remember, there was a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by night. And the Jews have a word for this in their religious tradition. It's the Shekinah glory of God. It's the white, shining, visible presence of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple. I think it was the Shekinah glory that surrounded the angelic choir when the shepherds were in awe and the the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is the same kind of Shekinah glory. And so just as the pillar of fire led the Israelites out of Egypt, I think that this star of Bethlehem is the glory of God leading the wise men, the magi, to the Christ child. And so just as God led the Israelites out of bondage using a bright light in the sky, He now brings these Gentile magi out of bondage to sin and death by bringing them to the light of the world, Jesus. I think it's the same God operating in much the same way, but this time He's bringing the Gentiles into the promises, into the wonderful promises of God. I really like this idea. They come from two opposite directions, (laughs) and it's the the same mode that God is using to guide them along. So here's what I think. When I think about the Magi in connection with that thought, here's a couple things I think that God is maybe saying to us through the story of Matthew 2, 1 through 12. One, in the overall flow of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, each, each of the four gospel accounts were written to four different audience, intended audiences. And Matthew, more than the other gospel writers, is addressing his gospel to a Jewish um, audience. And his whole thing is he's trying to, through, from beginning to end, he's going to be convincing, seeking to convince a Jewish audience that Jesus is the promised Messiah. 
And he's also confronting the Jewish mind with some things that are unexpected to the way they've been trained to think of the Messiah. And one of those things that Matthew is very eager to communicate to people who are in sort of a set religious tradition that in some ways had departed from what what God truly intended was that this was not a tribal religion. This was a religion that's global in scope and that God intended to extend the blessings and the promises to the Gentiles. And so it's very pointed that, say, in the beginning, when Matthew begins with the genealogy of Christ, that he includes people like Ruth, who's a Moabitess, or he might include um, people like Rahab uh, by name, which is also very striking. Of course, she was a Canaanite woman. And so when we come then to the Christmas story, Matthew highlights in a very pointed way that right at the beginning, God drew Gentile sorcerer weirdos to the manger. (laughs) And I think that that's, I mean, when I add sorcerer weirdos, that's not in the Bible, but I think based on as best I can suss out through my digging through commentaries and stuff, I think that's how the people of that day would have thought of the Magi. In Jewish culture and according to their cultural and religious sensibilities, these Magi, definitely sorcerer weirdos, definitely. So that's one thing. One is they're Gentiles. This is very pointed. And one of the things that I I think we can take out of this at Christmas is that I don't care who you are, what background you're from, the meaning and the significance of Christmas is for you. This does not, this is not, no group on earth has a proprietary relationship to these wonderful truths. It's for you. This belongs to you. Jesus came for you. And the other thing is that these magi were sinners. (laughs) These magi really were playing on the wrong side, wrong team. They had really dabblers in some very dark things. We might say in the occult. And it's very interesting to me, very pointed and deliberate that over and against the wholesome picture of the shepherds, we have here the Magi. When Jesus came into the world, Jesus said, I came not to save the righteous, but sinners. Doctors don't come for the healthy, they come for the sick. And I think in a very deliberate, pointed way, here at the Christmas story, God is announcing that Jesus came for such as these. So I don't care what family you're from. I don't care what nation you're from. I don't care what faith tradition you're from. I also don't think it matters one iota what sins you have in your past. Again, just as we said last week with our study of the shepherds, there is no barrier that keeps any human being from coming into the presence of Jesus, coming into the presence of His promises except pride. You have sins in your past, He has more grace than you have sinned. So those are two things. One, these magi were Gentiles. Second, they were pretty egregious sinners. And then the third thing we need to see here is that the magi were guided there. 
They did not arrive in Bethlehem by virtue of their own wisdom. Uh, one of the problems I had, and I made a feverish flurry of phone calls midweek, one was to Greg Moody. <laughs> I was like, guys, I've got a real problem. I'm studying Matthew 2, 1 through 12, and I probably called a dozen pastors with this question and really didn't come up with a good answer. I, at least I didn't feel good about, thought a lot of answers, but I didn't really feel like I understood it, which I'm not smart. That's okay. <laughs> But one of the things is that these guys are astrologers. The Magi are famous for studying the stars and attaching supernatural import and significance to what they see in the stars. So I had a real problem with God using a star to reach them. Wouldn't this be like God speaking truth through tarot cards or Baal speaking about Jehovah? If the wise men learned about Jesus because of their close and careful study of the stars, that would not repudiate astrology, which elsewhere in the Bible, God clearly does. In fact, He forbids the practice of this kind of uh, way of trying to understand divine revelation. And so I was really puzzled by that, but what I came to see is that I don't think this was a star. And I don't think they arrived at any understanding of Jesus because of their wisdom or their study. I think this confounded everything they had ever come to know about how the studying the stars worked. This was God speaking a new thing that upset all of their categories. And so what I think we need to see is, yes, these men were horrible sinners. These men were outside the community of faith. And third... They did not arrive in Bethlehem because of their wisdom or their goodness or their intellect. They got there because a merciful God opened their eyes to see something and guided them along to the point where they needed to be. That's my story. That's your story. None of us found ourselves bowing the knee before Jesus as king because we were good or wise or we reasoned things out to a point where other people couldn't. We're not an exceptional people. We follow an exceptional, amazing God who in His mercy and grace came to us when we were lost in darkness. And the Magi are a picture of that. But I think here in this um, part of the Christmas story, we see a great compare and contrast between what it is to be a true worshiper of Jesus and a false worshiper. Uh, Herod is here in this story, and Herod for me is one of those uh, figures in the Christmas story that doesn't get enough press. I think he should be right up there in our minds as a, a, a feature in the Christmas story. He's kind of a Grinch, I guess. He's, <laughs> he's kind of an anti-Christmas figure, but he's a Grinch that in the end does not repent. He's like an Ebenezer Scrooge that never comes around. But one of the things that's interesting to me is to compare and contrast uh, Herod with the Magi. Herod, uh, when he hears the news about Jesus as being born, it says that he's troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And of course, he's troubled because he's king. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? This is like uh, announcing the arrival of a new leader to a paranoid dictator, right? Of course he's troubled. 
However, when the wise men see the star, it says that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. These are two very different hearts, heart postures toward the truth of who Jesus is. And one of the things that, um, that I like to point out at Christmas time is just this. Guys, there's a throne in your heart. One day Herod is there in Jerusalem, and he receives word of this strange, dusty caravan arriving from faraway lands and asking this really troubling question. Where is he who's going to have the job you currently have? (laughs) We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. These foreign dignitaries arrive with a large caravan and they say, we are here to pay honor to somebody other than you. (laughs) And everything in the paranoid dictator heart of Herod says, has a grasping desire for that and to retain the power, the grip on what he has. Isn't it interesting also that Herod searches the word of God? And apparently, he believes what it says. He believes what it says concerning the Messiah. He believes the Bible is true, but he just hates the truth of it. And Herod's dilemma is not so foreign to many this morning who have honestly awakened to a realization of who Jesus is and the claims that he's made on all of our lives. The truth is, is that there's a throne in each of our hearts, and there has been born one who is the king of that heart. And we have a choice to make. Well, how will we respond? Herod, for all that we might criticize this man... I would suggest that at least his response to the truth of Jesus makes sense. Somebody saying, I'm going to murder Jesus, makes more sense than the person who goes, who yawns and goes, eh. At least Herod understood what he was looking at, I think. He just hated it. But somebody who looks at Jesus and yawns, I don't believe they have any idea what they're looking at. I don't think they have any idea about the, imp- the weight of the claims that he's making. Herod believes. He just hates it. And just as Herod's reaction to Christ would seal his eternal fate, it is the same with us. For without doing too much violence to Scripture, you can put your name right there in verse 2, where it says, King of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of Josh Tate? Where is he who has been born king of your life? Such a one has been born, and he is king, but is he yet sitting on the throne of your heart? What will you do with Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What is his significance? This is the great question of each of our souls. And according to God's word, how we answer those questions will matter eternally. In the Magi, 
we see they're very unlikely people, and the, how they got there to Jesus is an unlikely coming to Jesus, but their response is a true, heartfelt, worshipful response. They respond to the truth of who Jesus is by bowing, worshiping, bringing Him, bringing him these gifts, which, by the way, a lot of people have spent a lot of time speculating about the meaning and symbolism of these gifts. I'll leave that for another sermon someday. But I will just say this, clearly what's happening in the midst of this gift giving is they're saying you are more valuable than these things. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, very precious, rare commodities in that day and in our own day. But they come to Jesus and give him these things, and it's a clear statement, you're worth more than this. You are a greater treasure than gold. And so this is a true worshipful response. And so we see again and again throughout this story that the Herod is a picture of a false worshiper. He's somebody who pays lip service. He says the right things while his heart feels none of it. And ultimately, in his heart, he is bent on maintaining control. He is pursuing his own agenda. He's not following yonder star. <laughs> He's, he is saying, everybody follow me. And I think that this is a time of year where we, it's good for us to ask ourselves, man, is, God, does this describe me? I know, you were, I know Jesus was born king of Josh Tate, but am I submitting much to his lordship? Or am I holding on to my power, my control of my life with a white knuckle grip? Uh, I've been watching the World Cup. And it's interesting to watch the World Cup and then come on Saturday nights and play soccer in the gym. Because, <laughs> you know, all week long I'm watching guys who are at the height of their craft playing soccer at an unbelievably high level. And then we come to the gym and we see people playing almost at that same level. And it's amazing. <laughs> right? Right? But what's amazing is you, you can roll a soccer ball to Josh Tate's feet, and I, you know, and then you can roll it to the feet of like Messi or Ronaldo. I mean, these guys can do amazing things with the same soccer ball. And right now, if I'm sitting on the throne of my heart, I'm calling the shots, I'm making the decisions. I'm saying this is the agenda. It is like a soccer ball at Josh Tate's feet. But in their example, the wise men, the magi, show us what it is to say, no, I'm going to follow another. I'm going I'm to pass the soccer ball to Messi. <laughs> I'm going to give God lordship. I'm going to let God call the shots. I'm going to let God say what to do with my gold. I'm going to let God say where I go and when. And it's, a, and it's much better. God will do better things with my life than I would have. 
Now, last week I shared the gospel. I won't go through the whole gospel plan this week, but again, if, uh, if last week got your interest and you're still hanging in there and wondering about Jesus, I just want to continue to confront you with the idea that these are the days, not next week, not tomorrow. This is the time right now to give your life to Jesus. These are the days to come in before Jesus is king and bow your knee as the shepherds did and worship him for who he is, to give him the sum total of your lives and submit to him. You can do that today. You can become a follower of Jesus. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, on this uh, snowy morning in the Christmas season, 2022, here in Mapleton, our minds have been transported to another time where exotic, faraway dignitaries arrived in the home where the King of Kings lived. And Father, I'm just again struck uh, by all that, that's in there. God, I don't even feel like we scratched the surface. There's so much more to unpack in connection with this story. But God, there at the beginning, you wanted very clearly to tell the world that there again is no barrier barring anyone from coming to Jesus. All kinds of people will be gathered around the throne in glory, just as all kinds of people were gathered there around the infant Jesus. And Father, we know also that these men were, were wicked. They were magi. They had been playing for the wrong team. But here we find them brought, on, brought into Team Jesus. And they're our brothers. And God, their story is roughly paralleling our own. God, we know that you called us into a saving relationship with Jesus. You drew us there just as surely as the light in the sky drew the Magi. Father, we know that we're not yours today because of our goodness, but because Jesus is full of grace. And Father, we find ourselves with hearts that are overfilled with joy as we think about this season and all that it means for us as followers of Jesus. Just as the Magi's hearts were filled with joy. But God, maybe there is one still who has been awakening to an uncomfortable feeling about who Jesus is and what is his significance, and they are struggling to surrender their place on the throne of their hearts. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the capacity through the Holy Spirit to relinquish control to another, to a good king. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for this uh, time of year, this special season, and pray, Lord, that again, we would live as your children, as uh, walking together as an honest reflection of our Lord. Help us to live as a living reminder of Jesus this Christmas season. Father, thank you for this word out of Matthew 2. 
Pray, Lord, that you would grow it and increase it in our hearts even after we go out from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.